Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Boren. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more, listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, sign up to our email list, and so much more. For daily updates, trivia, shenanigans, and the occasional giveaway, follow us on social media over Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And now, on to this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Strangeology Podcast. Uh, first off, Happy New Year's, everyone. We survived the dumpster fire that was 2020. I don't plan on getting my hopes up for this year, though, but let's make the best of it as much as we can. I wanted to give a big thank you to anyone who listened to my intro episode last week. I've had this idea to do this in my head for quite a while now, um, and it's awesome and also weird to finally be doing it. So thanks to the folks who inspired me and also encouraged me to just take the leap into starting this podcast. I'm having a lot of fun with it so far. The first episode was a little bit of a mess and I kind of winged the whole thing, uh, but fuck it. <laughs> we'll be moving, moving forward and hopefully things will uh, go a lot smoother from here on out. When I was trying to decide what to research for this week's episode, I decided that I wanted to share something interesting about where I'm from in New England. There's a lot of interesting tales that hail from this area of the country, uh, my homeland. <laughs> Lived here my whole life, and uh, I don't know everything. There's so much to go over. If you're unfamiliar with all the oddities and curiosities and legends and myths that are in this part of the world, um, you know, I figured why not take a thorough look into some of these stories, uh, some I'm familiar with to start off with at least, uh, and then share them with you all because uh, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. there. And there's so many stories that it's not something that's really going to be able to be covered in one or two or three episodes. So my thought here is that I'll probably turn this into some kind of series. Um, maybe, uh, come up with some kind of a name. I, I, there's a few like names already taken for stuff like weird new England. So <laughs> I got to think of something a little different. Um, so I'll probably come back and revisit different new England stories from time to time as I bounce around from different topics, uh, and interviews with people. So, um, with that said, uh, let's get on with the episode. All right. So the first topic I'm going to cover here is something that is called America's Stonehenge, uh, which is a site located in Salem, New Hampshire, about 40 miles north of Boston. And this supposed prehistoric site is located on 30 acres of land. And this site contains several cave-like dwellings and some other curious 
and perhaps intentionally placed megalithic rocks, which I've read have an apparent astronomical alignment. Uh, If you're familiar with ancient Egyptian archaeology and the like, you'll find that astronomical alignments were pretty important for ancient megalithic builders builder cultures, um, like the Egyptians or the ancient Mayans. So there's something potentially there. Although, uh, during my research, I wasn't able to quite find what these stones were aligning themselves to. So perhaps a little bit more in, in depth searching might need to be done. Um, and I live fairly close to this area a few hours drive so perhaps this year I can uh, make a trek down there and actually see this place myself but moving on other mysterious structures have been left behind at this site like a alleged sacrificial stone which has a groove carved out around it which some believe was used um to collect the blood of sacrifice uh, victims, which, as far as I've found, isn't necessarily the case. Um, So, other than that, not much is really, really known about the site, and I guess there's really nothing too concrete. A lot of it is just conjecture. This site first opened to the public back in 1958, and it was actually originally called the Mystery Hill Caves by the landowner at the time, uh, William Goodwin. And in 1982, the site was actually renamed to America Stonehenge. And to this day, uh, the site still raises questions for archaeologists and researchers and people who visit the site. And really the thing is with this site is they encourage people to draw their own conclusions. But there are some interesting little tidbits of knowledge uh, I found during my research about the theories of why this was created and what the whole story is. So among the theories of who built the site and why, there's a couple, and I'll go over them now. Uh, one theory suggests that a group of migrant Europeans may be descendants from the builders of England's Stonehenge somehow voyaged across the Atlantic Ocean sometime in the distant past, found themselves in what's now known as Salem, New Hampshire, and decided to put together an arrangement of rock formations and uh, cave-like structures, uh, perhaps to store food or something of the like. It's very well possible, as we now know, that the Norse arrived in the Americas off the coast of Newfoundland and Canada around uh, 500 years before Columbus's voyage in 1492. And they had a settlement that lasted there until the 1400s, incidentally, uh, in the area that's now called Lance O. Meadows. Going back even further, there's even theories that the ancient Phoenicians, who dominated 
the Mediterranean Sea in ancient times could have journeyed across the Atlantic and made it out to America as well, uh, but that's probably best explored in another episode. And perhaps one of the more mundane explanations of the site's structures is that they were simply arranged by 18th and 19th century farmers uh, due to the old style of land use practices. So it's, it's possible that this is maybe the more likely explanation. Many people believe that a farmer by the name of Jonathan Patty may have been the original culprit behind the arrangement of many of the stones and cave-like structures on this site. And they very well could have been used for uh, storage purposes for grains and other other things on uh, the farm that existed there at the time. Along with this, William Goodwin, who purchased the land in 1937, is believed by some to have manipulated the site as well. It's said that Goodwin was convinced that the site was inhabited by Irish monks in pre-Columbian times, and it seems like he wanted to gain some kind of notoriety with the concept and perhaps make a buck, which, if true, would indicate that any prehistorical significance is simply just a hoax that was widely created by him. Interestingly, though, samples from the site were radiocarbon dated and determined that human activity had been present at the site as early as 2000 BCE. And furthermore, in 1982, excavations at a stone quarry just north of the site found ancient tooling of stones that were consistent with Native American lithic techniques. And so perhaps uh, there's something uh, a little more than meets the eye to this site. All right, now, heading over to Vermont, we're going to delve into the infamous Bennington Triangle. Now, this is something I've been wanting to cover for, for quite a while, and it always just seemed a little too daunting to make a post on my Instagram page. So here we go. So the Bennington Triangle, uh, which is centered around Glastonbury Mountain, is located in the southwestern corner of Vermont. And uh, the area has been known for years to be um, host to a lot of high strangeness. Um, It's definitely probably one of the the more interesting spots in New England. Um, Reports of UFO activity, even Bigfoot sightings, uh, weird lights and sounds emanating from the mountain and its surrounding forests, uh, and even a number of disappearances have occurred uh, that, you know, are probably would fit right into David Politis's missing 411 if they're not already in there, which uh, I bet they are. And, those are among the stories you'll find out about this place. According to Native American lore, the spot is said to be cursed land and was used strictly as a burial ground. Another intriguing reason why Native Americans have been 
written about to be wary of this area around Glastonbury Mountain comes from an old Algonquin legend. This legend warns of a malevolent man-eating stone that will open up and devour anyone who is unlucky enough to have accidentally stepped on it. A little bit of history about this area, or I guess more, uh, more history, really. Uh, the area of Glastonbury Mountain was once a booming logging town um, with a lot of industry in southern Vermont. Uh, we had the towns of um, Bennington, which is, uh, you know, a sizable town these days. Uh, the town of Shaftesbury, Woodford, and Somerset, and the town of Glastonbury itself, um, the latter two of which are now ghost towns. Like many towns in this period, in the mid to late 1800s, they began to decline Glastonbury was founded in 1761, which was actually before Vermont was even a state. So there's definitely some old history there. Because of its rich and dense forest, this area uh, made sense that uh, it would attract the logging industry. And the town itself was divided into two parts. Fayville, where the sawmill was situated, and South Glastonbury, where most of the industrial activity took place in the town. As the town declined over the years, locals looked to develop the southern part of the town into a remote tourist getaway um, by the time it was about 1894 in an effort to make sure the town and its railroad wouldn't go broke. By 1897, the improvements to the town to make it a tourist attraction included uh, the arrival of a of an electric trolley, and the logger's boarding house was actually converted into a resort that had a casino. Looking at old pictures of how it used to be, and really any old pictures from this time period are kind of haunting, especially knowing that they're now a ghost town. Like, there used to be human activity, and... Now this area, it was quickly reclaimed by the forest. And it's, even in the town I grew up in, uh, there were some, there was an old spot uh, up, up in the mountains that had an old kind of ghost town to it where there's all these old foundations just kind of chilling out in the woods. And when you go into places like that, you just get like a weird feeling that there's you know, some kind of, not, not a ghostly presence, but just there's something there, obviously, but it's, it's, it's kind of wild. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Northern part of the town's forests had been decimated by the logging and coal industry, uh, that put this area on the map and the ecological impact seemed quite clear from the clear cutting of the forest and the mounting environmental problems uh, like flooding and erosion began taking place in the town. And really it was kind of at the point of no return. And in the following year, 1898, a massive flood uh, destroyed the, the town's railroad tracks and pretty much cut off access um, to the outside world, effectively killing the town of Glastonbury and at that point, 
due to the rugged terrain and it being up in the mountains, nobody really wanted to try to rebuild at that point. So that's kind of the history of that, of that town. So now we're going to talk about one of the more well-known, uh, high strangeness, uh, series of stories and events about the Bennington Triangle. Uh, this is about the disappearance of five individuals between 1945 and 1950. In 1945, a man by the name of Mitty Rivers, who was a longtime resident of the area, an experienced hunter and fishing guide, was leading a group of hunters into the forest around Glastonbury Mountain in early November. Rivers was elderly at the time, at 74 years old, but uh, he was evidently in great shape for his age. His doctor found no reason to really worry too much, as he had recently had a physical and, and checked out pretty good. And while the group was heading out of the forest, uh, Rivers got ahead of the rest of the hunters and simply disappeared. What followed was weeks of a massive search effort, but the only sign of rivers that searchers found was a single rifle cartridge found in a stream that belonged to him. No other traces were ever found of rivers, and no one was really ever sure what happened to him or how he could have disappeared and vanished without a trace. The following year, there was another disappearance. Paula Weldon, who was 18 years old at the time and a sophomore at Bennington College, had gone out for a hike on the Long Trail. If you don't know, the Long Trail is a hiking trail that spans the entire length of Vermont from Massachusetts all the way to Canada, and it was created between the 1920s and 1930s. And till this, to this day, it's a, a popular attraction for hikers, and lots of people go on it during the summer months of the year. Now, Paula went out for her hike in, on December 1st, and the last two people who saw her alive were an elderly couple that claimed to have seen her on the trail. She was about 100 yards ahead of them, and they saw her turn a corner on the trail. And shortly after, they reached the same bend where it seems... According to the story, at least, you would have been able to see someone ahead another hundred yards after this bend. And she wasn't there. She had completely vanished. No sign of her at all. Later, when Paula had not returned to her dorm, it was assumed that she was missing and search efforts were conducted to no avail. And even with the help of the FBI, who got involved, and a $5,000 reward, no evidence of her remains were ever found. But some believe that the simplest explanation is that she ran off to live with a boyfriend and start a new life elsewhere. While that's, you know, a logical explanation, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. Interestingly, little factoid, which I didn't know about until I was looking into this story in detail, 
is that the search for Paula Weldon actually led to the creation of the Vermont State Police. All right, so the next missing persons case happened three years to the day after Weldon's disappearance on December 1st, 1949. This time, uh, James Tedford, who is a veteran, was returning to the Bennington Soldiers' Home after visiting family in the northern part of the state, uh, St. Albans, actually, which is, gosh, about half an hour from the Canadian border. Uh, And he was traveling back on a bus. According to witnesses, Tedford got on the bus and was still present on the last stop before making it to Bennington. At this point, this is kind of where things get weird. When the bus arrived at the station in Bennington, Tedford was simply gone. According to the story, his belongings were on the luggage rack on the bus, and the bus timetable that he was holding was lying on his vacant seat. Where could he have gone without anyone noticing is the question. I don't have any answers, and I don't think anyone else ever did find an answer to that. And the final two occurred in October of 1950. On October 12th, eight-year-old Paul Jeffson disappeared when his mother left him unattended in their truck for an hour. When the mother returned, her son was gone. Paul was said to be wearing a bright red jacket, which would have made him easy to spot, but search parties came up empty-handed. According to one story, bloodhounds that were used in the search effort were on his scent and tracked it to a local highway, which incidentally was near the spot where Paula Weldon was last seen, so just around the long trail four years earlier in the Glastonbury Mountain area. So there's something a little dark and ominous about that. Definitely. I mean, an eight-year-old boy getting out of the car and wandering off probably isn't too uncommon, but the bloodhounds following his scent to that spot is a little, little creepy for sure. kind of like something was summoning him there, maybe. Uh, Obviously, I don't have the answer. And, you know, people go missing all the time around the world. But there's, you know, possible that there's something else going on here. Now, the last person who went missing is also the only one that was ever found. Uh, Frida Langer was 53, and she vanished... Only a couple weeks later, on October 28th of that same year, 1950, and Langer was camping with family and decided to leave leave the campsite with her cousin Elsner to go hiking out in the woods. During the hike, Langer slipped and fell into a nearby stream and, you know, got wet, ruined her clothes, and she told her cousin Elsner to wait and she would run back to camp and change into dry clothes and run back to continue the hike. When she didn't return after some time, Elsner decided to head back to the campsite and discovered that 
his cousin never actually made it back to camp and nobody in the family had seen her. In the following two weeks, five search and rescue operations were conducted, but no trace was ever found of Frida. However, the following May in 1951, her body was actually found near the Somerset Reservoir by hunters. In a classic case of high strangeness, this area was extensively searched in the seven months prior, so you would think that the 300 or so searchers would have found some trace of her uh, before her body randomly appeared in a spot that was searched over many times. And by this point, her body was so deteriorated that no apparent cause of death could be determined. Interestingly, uh, the Bennington trial, uh, triangles, you know, namesake wasn't actually coined until 1992, uh, when the author Joseph A. Citro, who stated it shared similar characteristics with Massachusetts Bridgewater triangle, uh, another area full of high strangeness, folklore and legends, UFO sightings, Bigfoot sightings and the like. And while it's possible foul play could have been involved in all, most or all of these cases, Citro was familiar with indigenous legends and folklore of the area. And he was actually the one that suggested the potential of the man-eating rock of Glastonbury Mountain could have been behind some of it. Just imagine these hikers potentially out on the trail and maybe they get off the path for some reason or something attracts them away and they wind up on this big rock and then boom, they're gone. That would be quite a way to go. <laughs> well, there's probably, probably rational explanations. It could be some, some sort of paranormal window area where people will unknowingly enter into a portal into another realm, never to return, or if they do, they show up in a completely unexpected place, dead or alive. And now this last segment, just so we don't go too long for this episode, I'm going to cover a couple of well-known cryptids that hail from New England. And New England is by no means no stranger to its fair share of cryptids. Perhaps the most well-known cryptid creature that we have here is the elusive Champ, who de- uh, dwells within Lake Champlain. And if you're not familiar with geography, which I'm sure most of you are, uh, Lake Champlain separates Vermont from New York. Monsters are believed to exist in bodies of water the world over, and Lake Champlain is no exception. Over the centuries, there have been over 300 reported sightings of this creature that we call Champ. Some of the earliest written accounts of Champ allegedly come from the French explorer and cartographer Samuel de Champlain, whom you guessed it, the lake is named after. In 1970, Vermont Life magazine wrote an article claiming that Champlain documented a, quote, 20-foot serpent, thick as a barrel, and with the head of a horse, which many people claim as proof that 
Champlain actually saw this lake monster. But as it turns out, this quote was completely made up. And instead, Champlain actually was noting seeing gar pike fish in the lake, some as big as 8 to 10 feet in length, which is, those are pretty damn big fish. And he also observed large sturgeon as well, which today many people believe is the most rational explanation for sightings of champ rather than some unknown monster or the more popular notion, uh, much like Nessie, the Loch Ness monster, uh, being a surviving plesiosaur um, from the Cretaceous period. Perhaps one of the more compelling cases for Champ being a real creature was the Mansi photograph taken on July 5th, 1977, by a woman named Sandra Mansi. She was on vacation with her family, and as they were driving by Lake Champlain en route uh, to St. Albans from the city of Virgins, uh, they decided to stop on the side of the road and take a picnic lunch. Later on... Her children were playing in the water, and she saw something strange in the lake. At first, she believed that it was a fish, like some kind of big fish, or maybe a, a diver or a person messing around in the water. But the longer she looked at this thing, the more she realized whatever it was seemed to have some kind of long neck with an eel-like appearance to its skin. It appeared alive, and it appeared to be moving its head around like if it was scanning its surroundings. And at that point, uh, Sandra yelled to her kids to get out of the water, and she then grabbed her camera and took a picture of what she believed to be a massive creature swimming in the lake nearby. And at that point, the family got in the car and booked it out of there. (laughs) as uh, anyone would if you saw something that you had no idea what it was (laughs) and you don't know what it's going to do. So uh, reportedly, Sandra didn't share this picture with anyone for three years and sat on it until 1980. And then at that point, after having nightmares about this creature, um, she finally decided to come public with it. And analysis of the photo proved that it wasn't doctored in any way. And to this day, remains one of the best pictures and pieces of evidence that uh, Champ actually exists. While this picture is kind of reminiscent of the surgeon's photograph from Loch Ness, um, which many people believe that's a hoax, um, many people also simply believe that Whatever is in this picture that Mansi took, it was just a a drifting piece of wood floating through the lake. And I've seen some diagrams that have shown how that could be the case. And it very well could be, but we won't know. Uh, Sandra passed away in, in 2018, so unfortunately, we'll never know the truth. Um, from what I've I've read of her account, I don't really think she had any reason to make the thing, the story up, uh, especially considering that she sat on, on the photo for three years before 
releasing it and and having it blow up for her. Um, so Champ is is one of the big ones for sure. And uh, you know we love we love Champ here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so we're getting we're getting pretty far pretty deep in here. Um, and there's so many other topics to cover on New England. We've got topics like the Woodstock Vampires, Mercy Brown, Lizzie Borden, the Gloucester Ghoul, the Northfield Pigman, to name a few. So I'll end this segment and the episode with one final cryptid story. And it's actually, it's one I've covered before over on the Instagram. Um, but it's, it's a classic story and I feel like it's it's kind of a, a one-hit wonder of, of cryptids because uh, this creature was really only sighted a couple of times. <laughs> uh, so this last story is on the Dover Demon. Now, uh, the 70s were definitely, 60s and 70s really, were a weird time. A lot of cryptid sightings in this period of uh, history. And... During the 70s, um, the late 70s, multiple people around the town of Dover, Massachusetts, which is just outside of, of Boston, claimed to have witnessed a strange creature lurking about. The story begins on April 21st, 1977. We have your, your classic story. There's three teenagers, uh, 17 years old, Bill Bartlett, Mike Mazoka and Andy Brody. And they were driving around around 1030 at night, probably just hanging out, having a good time. Bartlett was driving the car. And as they were driving along, he spotted something out of the corner of his eye, just up ahead the road a little ways. That was kind of stalking along an old stone wall, which there are many in New England. That's just right on the side of the road. And Bartlett assumed that, It was probably just a cat or a dog, which, you know, anyone would probably think. But once his car's headlights fully illuminated the creature, he realized that it wasn't a cat or a dog. It wasn't anything he'd ever seen before. And according to the story, the creature turned his head towards the car, revealing two large, round, shiny, orange-like eyes which in Bartlett's own words looked like, quote, like two orange marbles. Its head was, was described as watermelon-shaped, and it was way too large for its thin body and spindly limbs, with long fingers curling around the rocks on the stone wall that it was traversing. Its skin was hairless, and its hue a peach rosy-orange color with some texture to it. Many liken its look to the classic gray alien, though it's certainly distinct uh, from them, from the descriptions. As far as its stature, much like an alien, or the classic gray alien, it was small, appearing to only be three and a half to four feet tall. Although it's unclear if that's with it on all fours or if that was standing up. It seemed to get around on all fours, but other accounts have noted that it can go bipedal and switch between the two modes of movement. 
Now, the same night, later on, uh, another teenager by the name of John Baxter was leaving his girlfriend's house. And it was about midnight. So that's a pretty pretty late night to be hanging out at your girlfriend's house. <laughs> and I think, uh, according to the story, John Baxter was about 15 at the time. So about a half an hour into his walk home, he noticed that someone or something was approaching him on the street ahead. The figure was short, and Baxter assumed that it was actually one of his neighbors that he was friendly with, uh, someone by the name of M.G. Bouchard. Baxter called out to the figure, but received no response, which kind of sets an ominous tone, right? In kind of a, a game of chicken, Baxter and the figure continued to approach each other until Baxter stopped dead in his tracks and decided to call out one more time to the figure, asking, who, who is it? Who is out there? And at that point, you know, it's 12.30 in the morning. It's dark. It's hard to make out any details of whoever or whatever was staring him down. And... Baxter decides, okay, I'm going to take another step, hoping to see who it was. And in that moment, this figure skittered off and ran into a nearby gully off the side of the road. And then it hurried up the opposite bank and made its way into the nearby woods. Baxter said that he could hear the sounds of dry leaves in the forest crunching under its feet. And in that moment, perhaps in a, a moment of bravery or maybe stupidity, he decided to take off after the thing. When he made it down the gully, he looked across the way and saw the creature about 30 feet away from him with its feet molded around a rock that it was standing on. He described its head as figure eight shaped with eyes locked on him. The two apparently had a stare-off, but Baxter began to regret his decision to give chase. Realizing this was like nothing he had seen before and fearing what this thing might do next, Baxter retreated back to the street. Luckily, a couple passing by in a car pulled over and offered him a ride home. These are really the only accounts that I'm aware of of the Dover Demon story. Whether it's true or not is anyone's guess, and leading skeptics theorize that the demon was simply nothing more than a lost baby moose. However, this the time of year that the sightings occurred in is not one that is known that baby moose are around. And really, Massachusetts is kind of uh, far from normal moose habitat, um, you think northern northern uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, sure, lots of forests, lots of uninhabited area, but the greater Boston area is pretty populated. Could it be possible? Maybe. Um, other theories of what this thing was range from it being an orphaned calf uh, or someone's exotic pet, like an escaped monkey. Other people have, again, theorized it could have been uh, an alien creature or some kind of mutant uh, or quite simply the story was made up.
All right, folks. So that just about does it for this episode. I wanted to give some quick shout outs to other podcasts, social media accounts, and, and people that uh, I think you should all be following if you're not already. Um, first up, I just want to give a quick shout out to Jeremiah over at the Bigfoot Society podcast. I, I did an interview with him uh, last year. It was a lot of fun and um, hoping to, to chat with him again soon. If you love listening to interviews with people who are out in the field, making things happen with a heavy focus on, on Bigfoot, uh, you definitely got to check out his podcast. Next up is the Moth Boys. The Moth Boys podcast. We got Moth Boy Matt, Moth Boy Mike, and Moth Boy Jake. This trio is hilarious, and they cover all sorts of cryptids and weird happenings uh, around the world. Quick disclaimer, don't, don't listen to them while you're driving because <laughs> you might laugh yourself off the road. Uh, shout out to Cryptid Chat with Yami. Yami covers all sorts of weird and interesting topics, and you definitely want to check out her podcast. She makes things super fun. Listening to her podcast definitely have learned a lot of new things that I would have never, never heard about. Uh, next up, we have uh, the Mysteries Obscure crew, and you can follow them on Instagram and also definitely check out their YouTube channel, um, which has a couple episodes up already. Uh, these guys are young and doing some cool stuff that I wish I was doing when I was younger. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a little old, sorry. Uh, and final shout out to all the weird over on Instagram to check out content on, well, all things weird. Greg's a great guy and um, he's growing his his page and putting out some, some great stuff. And on a final note, if you ever have any stories you'd like to share with the Strangeology podcast, I plan to do occasional listener, listener story episodes because what better information is out there to expand our knowledge of weird happenings than with first-person accounts. Uh, my DMs on social media are always open. You can find me on Instagram at strange.ology. That may or may not change at some point in the near future. Um, or you can email me at strangeologist at gmail.com. That's S-T-R-A-N-G-E-O-L-O-G-I-S-T at gmail.com. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange. <laughs>